My name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Few artists are able to successfully pivot from one medium to another, but this week's guest has made the transition and come out on top. Today, he's known as Albersir Holly, an artist with a burgeoning career who appears in ads for Courvoisier and shows in galleries and museums. But not too long ago, he was known as Bubonic of Philly's Most Wanted, a hip-hop duo whose first album was produced by the Neptunes, a.k.a. Pharrell Williams and Chad Hugo. For a hot minute, they were all the rage. Jay-Z, Dr. Dre, the Fugees all wanted a piece of what PMW had. Eventually, they signed with Atlantic Records, had a hit, toured the world, put out a second album, and disbanded. In his second life, he paints and owns Tango Hotel, a clothing company that features his designs. Welcome, Al Basir. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. Well, well said. Well said. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> so what was it like growing up in Philly and wanting to be a rapper while all the attention was focused on L.A. and New York? Philly didn't have any artists that had been signed at that point, right? Yeah, it was really hard. Like first, before it even got to the label part, it was a lot of footwork because there was no buzz generated around that area in general was no social media no internet really you had to like be on foot go around battling people and once we actually got to the point where we started to gain some notoriety and the label started to come down they still were trying to tell us like don't because our name was philly's most wanted they would be like let's just cut it the most wanted and you guys <laughs> can kind of piggyback off in new york and we were like no like we from philly like we don't want to piggyback off basically they wanted us to act like we were from new york so that tells you what the scene was like at the time that we got signed. But it was a scene, right? There were a lot of rappers, a lot of battles. Yeah, it was all very community. And that's something that's really unique and interesting about the rap scene in general, the sense of community, mm-hmm. even though there are battles, literal and just word battles, but physical yeah. battles, but there's still a sense of community around it. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was like, it was us, major figures, uh, Eve, Charlie Baltimore, Beanie Siegel, Cassidy. We all literally battled in the same house day in and day out. And none of those dudes had record deals at the time. We actually had the first record deal on the table and major figures. They actually were signed first. We had a deal before them, but we didn't sign our deal. For a year and a half, they signed the Rough House, I believe it was, a Rough Nation, immediately. So they actually were the first group signed out of Philadelphia. And then Beanie Siegel came, and then we came. So it's still a kind of a difficult thing, right, to be out of the spotlight and try to build your repertoire. But at the same time, I feel like it's also an advantage in some ways. You don't have to be influenced by the major market and try to fit in. Yeah. Yeah, it's like we could find our own niche own it we felt really good about the sound that was coming the new rap renaissance that came out of philadelphia at the time and 
had a lot of support from like the roots and people who were established already. It was a good time, a really, really good time. I'd like to see a documentary about it one day because it's a lot of unsaid things and a lot of unknown things about that whole time in, in hip hop history in Philadelphia. Yeah, man, maybe you could make it. That would be cool. Yeah, I was talking about it re- very recently with some people. I was reading an article in Fader, like a long article about uh, the history of, of your group. And it was trying to make sense of your musical career. And I'll read a little piece of it. It (laughs) says, it was death by a thousand moves of minor management. It didn't help that the video for the big single was banned by BET for being too overt in its drug smuggling ethos. It's cruel, arbitrary fate for a very good rap record that by virtually any measure should have made its creators bankable for the next decade of their lives. Instead, the group was left behind by two runaway trains, the Neptunes and Rockefeller, and just a few years later simply ceased to exist. Do you agree with that assessment? 100%. The reality is I'm much older and wiser now. So it was a point in time where I put a lot of blame on management and uh, mismanagement, you know, and I come to terms with that kind of thing. Like, yeah, I'm sure they made some mistakes, but the biggest mistakes were made by me and my partner, because at the end of the day, we're our own beings and we're responsible for ourselves to let anybody dictate what we were trying to do when we actually knew what was the right thing to do and went against that for whatever reasons, it's on us. So like, yeah, it was very painful to watch both of those trains move out when we knew how much we had to do with it, how often Jay-Z tried to even get us off Atlantic Records. You know what I mean? Like it was just all these things behind the scenes happening and to see how it all panned out in that very beginning point of that, it was painful. I can't even lie to you because like I'm watching people buying houses and cars and becoming millionaires like right in front of my face. And we knew that we were right there too. You know what I mean? We were on the way. We made some money for sure, but not nothing like we could have and should have. You know what I mean? One story I'll tell you, like uh, because of the BET thing, we went on tour with Cash Money, um, opening up for the Baller Jingles tour. We would come out and we would do, you know, they Philly's most wanted and the crowd would be like, you know, like, <laughs> and uh, we'd be rapping and rapping and rapping. And then soon as Cross the Border come on, you could tell like the whole crowd just go crazy. Like, oh shit. Like they just realized it was us because we didn't have any visuals out there because it got banned. So they didn't know. They knew the song. It was number three in the country forever, but they didn't know us. Like they didn't know what we looked like. So like that really hurt us too. The video getting banned by Stephen Hill and those people over there at BT. So, you know, perfect storm. But that song also was interesting in that it was reaching out to other cultures, other kinds of music. It was opening up people's minds. Even though you guys were hard coming from Philly, everyone knows what that was like. Yeah. You still were open to other ideas and other kinds of music. Definitely. It was very melodic, very heavy uh, Mexican influence. You know, like we were doing shows in like El Paso and all these crazy places that like I couldn't even believe music was taking us. And just watching how that culture was really into that song, uh, among others. But like, it was really cool to see because sitting with Pharrell, he knew all this uh, before we even made the record, you know? So like to hear him break it down and tell us what was going to happen and 
all that kind of stuff. And then to actually see it take place, it was crazy. I was like, wow, this is really cool. We really young at the time. We, we never experienced any of this stuff. So it was like very, very cool. Very cool. Very exciting. And also working with uh, the Neptunes and Pharrell, as you said, yeah. when you first uh, you know, met him, did you feel right away that he understood what you were doing and that you were working with some kind of special crew in the house there in, in uh, Virginia Beach? Yeah, Virginia Beach. I'll tell you the entire story. I was just actually speaking to somebody the other day about this. Rich Christina, who was our A&R at Atlantic Records, you know, we just getting signed and everything is exciting. And he's like, yo, I got a Nike guy <laughs> who like works for Nike. He'll get you guys anything you want. His name Ashton Chambers. And we like Nike, like we get all this free Nike. Like we couldn't wait to meet him. So he was like, we have a meeting set up with him. But he's talking to another guy that we hooked him up with because we want y'all to work with these guys, too. They called the Neptunes. They did Noriega record. And, and we like, yeah, yeah, that record's crazy. You know, like, yeah, like. So we go to the studio and Astor's there and Pharrell's there, Chad's there. Now, Pharrell's on the phone the entire time. When we first got there, he's on the phone. He's like sitting in the lounge area. And we're like, yo, um, you know, we from Philly, da, 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 da. And he's like, yeah, like, I heard y'all crazy. Like, let me hear y'all. So we just start rapping. I don't even, I can't even tell. No, he played this The Clips video, uh, The Funeral. And they had just had been released from their record label. And he was like telling us all about it or whatever. And he was like, let me hear you guys. It wasn't one of his beats. I know that much. It might have been acapella, but we rapped and was rapping and rapping. And he was on the phone. And then I just see him like, he like, let me call you back. He hang up the phone and he looking at us like, like, what the hell? And like, we just kept going. And then he hopped up and he was like, all right, come here. Let me, and took us in the studio. And he was like, this is a record I'm working on right now. And it was Hey Dirty with Khalees, like, baby, I got your money, that song. And he played it, and he was like, I just did this yesterday. We like, man, that shit is crazy. He's like, yeah, like, so he's like, I, I got an idea for y'all. Like, instantly, like, he was just like, you could see the wheels turning in his head. He was like, I got an idea for y'all. I know, you know, and honestly, like, I know our records that came out and did well, like, Please Don't Mind and Cross the Border. I know they were commercially successful and had that kind of radio pill, but at the time we met Pharrell, all our shit was super hardcore. <laughs> like, all our music was, like, super street and dark and hardcore. And he's the one who was, like, I guess off of the hills of where he just saw happen with the clips, his thing was, like, I, I don't want to make that same mistake again. Like, you know, so he's, like, I want to brighten it up. And, and like, I, he, I hear how hard y'all are. I know it's authentic, but I want to give y'all some stuff that, like, make sure y'all be successful, you know? So the first record he gave us was Lady's Choice. And we were listening to it and, and like, I was like, honestly, I was like, I don't, I don't know about this. Like, <laughs> I don't want to do this song. It was very R&B sounding and very, you know, and I'm just like, and he like, trust me, trust me, just do this song. After this, we do whatever. Just do this one song from trust me, trust me, trust me. And we did it and loved it. Once it was cut, it was awesome. Like, so that was our first, that's the rundown of how it went meeting Pharrell and Chad and those guys. That's interesting for me to hear because I've been around Pharrell in different social situations, but never really seen him working and see the brilliance. You don't really see that outside and, yeah. you know, and he's kind of low key at the same mm -hmm. time. So yeah, that's really interesting to hear how he works that way. Yeah. He's a fan. He's a fan. Like he has to be a fan. Like, He's the fan. 
that's how you get the best out of Pharrell. If he's a fan of yours or, or likes what you're doing, his wills just get to going. Like, and that's really cool. Obviously, he's doing something right. Yeah. How do you feel today when you go back and listen to your music and watch the videos like Please Don't Mind, for <laughs> example? It stands the test of time. It makes me really happy because I know when I'm long gone off this earth and all these things, we made some stuff. It's been 20 years. You know what I mean? And it still sounds good. I know it's going to stand the test of time because Pharrell and Chad's cash shape has risen. When we got with them guys, like Pharrell lived at his mom's house. He had money. Like he had an NSX, Acura, and a Porsche, and an Escalade. <laughs> like he had money, but he still lived at his mom's house. And they were in a studio that wasn't theirs. Just to watch everybody's elevation is crazy. And, and to know that we're part of that lineage, you know, like it's really cool. Uh, it's really cool. As you said, you didn't have Google and internet and social media. Yeah. And so t- when I go, when I went on to Google you, you know, Philadelphia's most wanted, <laughs> you know, all of the criminals like came Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so that, you're going to have to figure that out too. If you put in Philly's most wanted, oh. a lot of that goes away. Uh, Philadelphia's most wanted, that's not us anyway. I think Philly, so, like, though, that's what, no, Philly. I think I did Philly. Really? Yeah, you should well, try. Well, I know if you start going you down fur, further, okay. yeah, I'm sure. then you see the criminals. I've seen that before. <laughs> so I know I know what you're talking about. I was like, wow, this is crazy. Yeah. Violence in the community still going on. People were just recently shot. Some of the best and the brightest yeah. in that whole world. We've lost every yeah. year. Do you expect that will always be a part of, of the hip-hop scene? I think one of the most dangerous plagues to enter our universe and our our world is clout. I think that right there is the real terror and a real danger to society is clout because what people would do for it is remarkable and very unfortunate and sad. And sadly, I believe the trend will be more towards like, you know, internet, oh, I'm going to do this for that. Like, I just saw yesterday Roddy Rich and 42 Doug video shoot got shot up and people got shot. And, and, you know, it's just like, I'm really starting to think that people is just doing this stuff for attention and clout. You know what I mean? And it's unfortunate. I see it trending in the wrong direction. Is there anything that could be done about it? Are the people actually speaking on it? Any effort to try to educate? We have 69 Takashi, obviously the most extreme example of something like that. Yeah. And, you know, riding that wave to jail, but, you know, still. I'll say his thing was dangerous on some level, but like nobody really died. You know what I mean? With the other stuff we've seen is like people really shooting to kill. Like, you know what I mean? Like Saha, like his car being shot up like that. He has no idea why. You know what I mean? He think it might have been mistaken identity or whatever. Or maybe it wasn't. Maybe it's just somebody that wanted to do that because it was Saha and they see him riding in the Bentley and things of that nature. I I, I don't know. I, I guess the more spoken on out outwardly, like where people can on those platforms where people can really see and hear I would hope it would help, but me just knowing the culture, the more you speak like that, the more people like, fuck out of here. Like, who are you to tell me what to do? You know, like that kind of thing. No, and I hear you. Yeah, because the gang thing, is the gang thing still, you know, as big as it was 
Or yes. is it coming back? Or what's no, the status? It's big. Gangs are gangs. Gangs been around before us, and they will always be like, it was gangs in the wild, wild west times. It's always been gangs, and they're going nowhere. You know what I mean? Like, they always be gangs. It's just really about what is it about for the gang? What are you guys coming together for? What is it ultimately about? Is it about killing to see how many people you can kill? Is it about power? Is it about money? Is it about uplifting your community? What does your gang represent? And that's what I think needs to be figured out because gangs are never going to, people have unrealistic expectations for things, you know, like gangs are never going, that's not the problem. It's about the organizations within that, like what are they representing? What do you want to do? That's what it's about, you know, and finding that out, fine tuning that. You remember, I'm sure, the, the early story with Africa Bambata taking the gangs and, and channeling that energy into creativity, music, dance, exactly. art. And for a minute, it looks like that was working, but then things slipped. I guess maybe the social media can, we can blame everything on social media. This is where we're speaking about clout. People, I don't know if you saw, I just saw this documentary or this experiment. It was a show on HBO called Fake Famous about social media and buying likes and influence and, and, and how people are treated once their status is raised on these platforms. People take trips just to get pictures. People risk their life to oh, get yeah, a no. certain picture. People have died trying to take a certain picture for Instagram for and like no, really shit. died like in the mix of it. That's going too far. Yeah, it's going too far. An example of that that I keep remembering and thinking about is during the Black Lives Matters demonstrations, uprising, I think it was in Long Beach, a girl pulls up in a car, all dressed, hot, stands in front of like a, a broken store window. Someone takes her picture. She jumps back in the car and they drive away. Uh, I saw that. I saw that. <laughs> yeah, I, did. I definitely saw that one. And like, yeah. That kind of thing. You know what right. I mean? Like, it's like, it's like, it's crazy, but you know, it is what it is. Given what you know, and as you said, you know, older and wiser, how would you run your music career today or even, you know, advise somebody else to, would it be mixtape, SoundCloud? Would you sign with a label? Would you be indie? Well, one thing, if I was lucky enough to be signed to a label in this day and age, I think I wouldn't put as much power into the idea that the label needs to make me a success. It's a partnership. And when you're really young, you don't quite understand that, you know, so you get signed and you're like, okay, they're, they're about to change my life, you know, partly true, but it's really a support blanket because what you can say is now you can go out and you can make all these moves and you have a label behind you that you can say, look, like I'm signed to this label it's leverage. You know what I mean? That's what happened within my own company with the art. When we formed the partnership for the brand, my art gave me a lot more leverage than it would have if I had not had the art. And within the actual business structure of it, like percentage-wise and how important am I to this company, it gave me a lot of leverage. Now, if I would have just went in there and just like, you know, like, hey, man, like, I, I, I want to be down. I'm, you know, I can do this. That would have been cool, too, but I wouldn't have as much leverage. I feel like as artists today, a lot of them do. They take it upon themselves with that situation to, like, maximize it. And that's what I would do today with, with what I didn't do then. We kind of laid back 
and waited for the label to change our lives. You know what I mean? I'd have been more proactive. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to compare, right? Because it's two different eras, but the opportunities are greater today because of social media also, if you want to say positive of all of that. So that enables you to then make these deals and collaborations and work with brands in a way. It is, but at the same time, then they was giving you 500, 400,000 for a video, 200,000 for a soundtrack feature. We could have maximized all those opportunities and we didn't. You know what I mean? Because they're not giving you that these days. They're not giving you nothing close to that. You have to do it yourself. And then the merch part of it, the 360 didn't exist yet. And there was no merch component where the label felt invested so they made sure you toured and made sure you did this that and the third it wasn't like that you had to do all that yourself you know what i mean now with the 360 they encourage they're going to help you get these situations because it's beneficial for them so that's the blessing of today for sure versus then so let's talk about the art for a little bit yeah you decided not to put out any more music why first of all were you painting on the side or still engaged with that in some way Well, I've been an artist my entire life. My dad does it. I just always did it. But I never thought of it as a profession because talented as I was as a child and and I was always in the arts and humanity charters in my public schools and all that, they always had me in the gifted section. I still was ignorant. I thought you had to die to become an artist. You know what I mean? Like to be great. I really thought that. I thought that for my whole childhood, you know, so I automatically put that out of my mind as a career choice, although I was really good at it winning art contests and everything. I decided very young what I wanted to be in life. And it was eight years old. I decided I wanted to be a rapper. I'm a Philly spitter, a, 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 a purebred Philly spitter. So I just couldn't change with the time as easily as some people can. And I don't knock them for that ability. I wish I, I really wish I could have, you know what I mean? But like, Something in me just couldn't let me just morph like that. I always kept in my head that hip hop would come back to the era of the spitter. And when it does, I would re-enter the chat. I kind of just fell back from that and started getting more into my art therapeutically, buying time to think and, 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 you know, figure out my life as an adult now that I'm an adult at this point. And it just kind of, I never chose to be an artist even now. I didn't choose it. I was just doing it therapeutically. And I had the support of uh, Tommy Hilfiger and Rita Ora and certain people that were close to me who saw I would give them art, you know, but then it was like, no, wait a minute. Like, this is really good. Like, you should like really, you know, and they kind of put the battery in my back to be like, okay, well, I'll I'll see what's going on here and take it a little more serious. That's just how it kind of took off. How did you connect with Tommy Hilfiger in that way? Well, Tommy Hilfiger, his son, oh, is Andy? my best friend. No, Andy? his son. His, that's Andy's Tommy's brother. His oh, son. His brother, okay. Yeah, yeah. His, his son is Rich, Rich Hilfiger. Okay. Rich Hilfiger Andy. is my best friend, and he's also my business partner in Tango Hotel. Oh, shit. Okay. Me and him own that brand, along with Ezra and Sons, who are a manufacturer who we partner with. I've known Rich since he was 15 years old. You know what I mean? We started making music together because he was an inspired, inspiring rapper at the time. And now he's just full out. Every artist that looks like him kind of took his style. And I've seen the DMs, the 
to prove it. The XXX extensions, the definitely uh, rest in peace, Lil Peep. He'd been over the house a lot, always spoke about how he looks just like how Rich really looks. Peep didn't look like that when Rich looked like that. Do you know what I mean? He has a heavy influence on that look and sound. Oh, yeah, cool. I didn't know about the, his son. I, yeah. I knew Andy from yeah. the New York downtown scene back in the day. And- the Hill figures are very influential. Tommy told me a story real quick. I'll tell you um, about Studio 54. Before he even had a clothing brand, he would go to thrift shops and he would just buy a bunch of stuff and they would cut it up and change it up and, you know, and they would try to get a Studio 54. And he remembers getting in before Liza Minnelli and different people just because how he was dressed and they had long hair. He always had that influence, you know what I mean? And that's what made him start making clothes when he saw the way people reacted to this cut and sew thrift stuff that he mixed and matched up like that. When did you realize you could make money, that this could be a profession or it just happened because you were painting? But when did it start to click, though? Well, Rita Ora, who is a friend of she was dating Rich at the time, and she was always around. I promise you, this is like, I'll never get credit for this, but it's just the reality of it. I, I'm used to not getting credit for things. I painted her Birkin bag. Never saw one painted before. Never, you know, the only thing I saw which made me want to do it was I saw Lady Gaga. She had a white Birkin bag that she let her fans in Japan write on with a ballpoint pen. So it was like all pink, just writing whatever in Japanese on there. And I was like, that's crazy. Like it was on our mood board for Tango Hotel. I just thought this is crazy. That's wild because I know how much the bag was. So Rita had a black one. She was like, can you paint like on mine? And I painted on hers. And then I started seeing the Kanye one from Kondo and all these different versions of Birkin bags after that. But that set it off for me because when she posted the bag, she put my email. I just did it for her as a friend. I didn't want nothing from it. And she put my email. And then I went back to my email later that night. And it was inquiry, 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 inquiry. And I was like, huh? Mm-hmm. And I like started clicking on them. And it was just money. Just sitting there. <laughs> like, how much? How much? You know, how much? And I didn't really believe it. So I was just like saying ridiculous numbers just to kind of like whatever. I'm like 3,000, you know? And they like, where I send the money? I'm like, oh, okay. And that was it. I never turned back. I never looked back. That was it. I took that as a sign from God. And I just kept pushing forward. And I vowed to never stop painting until the day I die, like ever. I do it every single day. I just got finished painting. That's why I was late to the Zoom. I didn't even realize I was like locked into this oil paint I was working on. You mentioned as far as your inspirations, Pablo Picasso and Basquiat, for example. Picasso, you know, uh, well, first of all, I I don't know how much you know because I've heard you say that you didn't really know very much about art, but I imagine you've educated yourself. You you mentioned Kondo, like George Kondo. I assume assume that's who you're referring to. Good examples because Kondo is Picasso-esque in a new way. All of them are. All of them are. See, I'm very well-versed now in art and and these, these people. Basquiat's paintings are versions of Picasso's. And a lot of people don't know that. He would take a painting that he saw of Pablo 
and he would just do it in his way. But it's the exact same painting, kind of like how Kahende takes these old Renaissance paintings and, and posture wise, and then he just changes the imagery, but the posture and, and the energy of it is still there. So top of the food chain for me is Pablo, and then there's Basquiat, and then there's Kondo because Kondo come up with Basquiat, so I know he was influenced by him as well. But they all influenced me, included by the big dog, Pablo Picasso. You know what I mean? And I'm lucky enough to have an original lit though from 1969 of, of Picasso's in my house, so that makes me really happy. And this guy's a big influence to me too, Bob Ross. That's original oh, Bob really? Ross. <laughs> That's original Bob Ross painting. That's very rare, very hard to get. There's a show now, Painting with John Lurie. It's on HBO. John I Lurie. saw that. I didn't look at it, though, but it's a painting show? Yeah, he's, he's a very interesting, also a great friend of Basquiat, by the way, back in the 80s on the downtown scene. He was yeah, yeah. a musician at first also. He had bands like Lounge Lizards, you know, sort of avant jazz. Yeah. Super cool, brilliant guy who went through a whole bunch of shit in his life as well. Yeah, a bad case of Lyme disease, wound up moving to the Caribbean and put together the show, Painting with John. It's philosophy, but it's also painting. I would be really curious to see what you thought of it. Oh, yeah, I saw it, and I, I think I attempted to watch it, and I was confused about what it was because I, exactly. I didn't see paint right away. So I was like, what is this? I'll watch it again. I'll give it another go. Yeah, because I think he starts out by saying, I'm not Bob Ross. That's what made me think he of it. He definitely did. He definitely, yeah, I saw, I saw that. Yeah, I saw that. I love Bob Ross, too. Maybe that turned me off, too, because that's my guy. <laughs> Bob Ross is everywhere. It's my guy. <laughs> Pablo Picasso got a lot of his influence from African art. Yeah, I know. So yeah. that's also interesting, right? So it was like yeah. sort of appropriated from African and now being repurposed yeah. again by you. I know. And, and the funny part, I see, you're a very smart man. I, I love talking. <laughs> no, for real, I love talking to people who understand certain things because me being a black man and people looking at me, it's easy for them to just write me off as like, oh, well, you're appropriating this and copying off of that and this, that. I'm like, you, you don't even know the full scope of what you speak of and like how this thing... First of all, there's no original artist. Let's, let's start with that. There's no artist that's original. It's all a rendition or influence or inspired by something. I can't help what happens. I don't look at paintings of my art idols. I don't at all. I just paint from what I feel. If I wake up and, and my hand goes this direction, it goes that direction. And that's just what it is. But without knowing the history of art and knowing that everyone's influence, it's very easy to feel that kind of way. But I also watch so many documentaries about all these artists that I also know that fear factor. I, it's not an artist that I'm a fan of who in his prime didn't hear about how he was copying off somebody or how it wasn't cool or not one of them from Lichtenstein on, on down, like all of them, they all heard it. You know what I mean? So I understand that. So when I hear it, it doesn't bother me as much because I understand that's par for the course. You know what I mean? I know that's part of it. Okay, you got that. Okay, we'll see. But yeah. when it's all said and done, I know the story that I'm writing. I'm very well aware of it. I'm very conscious of it. It's very intentional, just like my art. And I know what I'm doing. 
And most artists will admit that, that they're influenced by someone. Like you said, nobody is not, you know, yeah. comes out like just like a blank no. slate with, and just no. starts shooting it. Another person that you admire <laughs> in a different way, Virgil Abloh. I've heard you talking about yeah. him. What You know, and he's a very minimal guy. He's not at all... Yeah in the same vein as, as these other people that you've been yeah, talking yeah. about. So what is it about him that, that gets to you? Well, Virgil, I've been around him, not direct directly, but we know some of the same people and I've seen him around forever. I know his flight, you know, I know his flight to get to where he's at now. And he constantly got pushed down and pushed down and suppressed and suppressed. Kind of like how Jimi Hendrix was, a member of the Osley brothers. You know what I mean? And they used to push him all the way in the back because of the <laughs> way he looked and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of the Osley brothers songs that has the crazy guitar on it, they give Ron Osley brother credit for it, but it's not him playing. That's Jimmy oh, Hendrix. Shit. No kidding, man. That's you know a, what I mean? So I'm like, gonna go listen to all of those right after this. It's like really that kind of thing with Virgil that I always appreciated because he persevered and he came through in a huge way. Virgil is the only guy I've ever seen in fashion that I know of that's working three or four brands at one time and there's no conflict of interest with these brands from his point of view. But like, they're not suing him. Like, oh no, you can't work with them and do this and do that and do that. He's doing it all, <laughs> you know, and they're letting him. I think that's amazing. I think he's amazing. I just hope that it never gets to a place which I see him come double back. People were kind of criticizing him for a couple of things during the pandemic, but I seen him double back with the collection and the models that he chosen and all this stuff. So, you know, he's doing this thing. I appreciate what he does. I've researched, so I know a few things, that Stevie Williams is somebody you grew up with, right? He's like the famous yeah, skateboarder. Yep. He's part of Tango Hotel with us, too. Okay, that's yeah, like, that's, that's what I that's a, that's a brother of mine. Back in Philly in Love Park, we used to leave school and go down to the gallery to try to get girls and stuff like that. But we wouldn't have money to get back. So we used to have to make a decision. Like We used to take money out of the wishing wells, grab silver <laughs> coins that we saw to get enough money to get back home. And then one day we realized that the turnstile at Love Park was bent. I was very small. And you didn't have to pay to go home. You could just slide through the turnstile and then you were in. We thought that was cool. And like we would watch the kids skating. It was Stevie and all them unknowingly at the time skating. And then me and Stevie got cool as adults, like really got cool. And he told me about how they took a jimmy, like a club, like to, to prop up a, a, a tire on the car and pulled the turnstile bars enough so people could slide through. And I'm like, yo. That was you? We benefited so much <laughs> off of that. Like, you know what I mean? We just bonded off of that and just built the relationship in our early 20s and just been on since yeah. then. He's so influential. I had Boo Johnson on my show. Boo Johnson. I was also talking about Stevie because he helped him out as well yeah. uh, quite a bit. So, uh, yeah, he's becoming like a legend in my mind. I follow he him is on a Instagram. Legend. He's a legend. Hey, I'm going to invite him on the show as well. Yeah, he's a legend really. for sure, for sure. He's like Jay-Z to me in the skate world because like at one point he was the only, like on Tony Hawk games, the early Tony Hawk games, he was the only African-American on there, Stevie Williams, before anybody, you know, he was the only one. Stevie a legend. He is a legend. 
And like he's a lot still of people skating. copy off him. Yeah, he's still skating. I see. And a Instagram lot of people copy off him. He very quietly made a huge influence on our culture. Definitely. Need to give him a little more, more props, right? So, uh, you know, we're going to finish uh, in a few minutes here, but I want to ask you, because you have a life partner, Christina Martinez. Yeah. Right? Because I know on your Instagram. Yep. And you have shown together in, in galleries as well. So yeah. I'm curious about how that works, because some couples like to keep their careers separate, pressure on either one to do something, but... With you guys, that doesn't come up? Well, we met sharing a wall for an art show we did at the Museum of Modern Art Cleveland. That's how we met. So it was already like a share space situation. I loved her work. I would have collaborated with her even if we didn't have a connection romantically. I thought she was cool. She liked my stuff. We spent so much time together. And we care about each other so much. We see eye to eye on a lot of things pertaining to the world and art and things of that nature. So it's not uncomfortable. It's like very easy and seamless. It just works. Like I'm lucky. We're lucky in that way. It just works. It's, it's no force to work with each other. It just happens. Do you, do you have a studio at home? Do you both have studios? I paint, have- I paint right here. Right in the space I'm sitting in, like I paint. And she's in another room, or where is she? No, she lives in Seattle. We don't. Oh, live, we I don't see. Live oh, there. you don't live together. Okay. Cool. No, no, no. She lives in Seattle. I live in Los Angeles. Yeah, she has a studio in, in Seattle. Okay, yeah, because maybe that's the way to do it, you know? Because I'm yeah, like, yeah, 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 I'm yeah. trying to imagine. Wow, how could these guys live together and get all this work done and so on? Yeah, but yeah. I guess you. Yeah, but we it see out. each other all the time. I go up there all the time. She comes down here. She's about to be here in a couple of days. We plan on getting a museum house. That's the ultimate goal, to build a house that doubles as a museum that holds our personal art collections, stuff of other artists that we collected over the years, and our art, hopefully in the very far future, have it open for people just to see when we're long and gone and free. That's great. That's a that's a good ambition, man. Good dreams. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, great talking with you, Al Basir. Same. Thank you so much. I look forward to shaking your hand one day. Same to you. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopburb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopburb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.